Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from... William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of St. Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Hey, welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Guerra. Bill, I was so unaware of this thing, the Candyman. Damn it. Why did you bring this to my attention? This is so highly disturbing. I hate it. I hate it. I hate everything about it. Yeah, this guy is the, you know, the epitome of a serial killer. I mean, this guy has the perfect freaking name. When I, honestly, I didn't know about this guy. There's been so many serial killers, but this guy is extremely disturbing. First of all, he got past you and I, and you and I have been doing this now for almost two years, and we had never heard of this guy, but it was actually Tracy who put me up on this guy, and he has the perfect name, the Candyman, and he is a serial killer extraordinaire. I mean... From everything his name, it, it, I don't even know how to pronounce his last name. It's Dean Coral or Corral. I think it's Coral. But this guy is just a horrible human being. You know, Tracy and I have known each other now for a minute. She's a very important person in my life, and she has. She actually is a true crime. I guess you could call it expert. She spent a lot of her time reading about this stuff, and we all know that usually women between the age of 22 and 58 are the biggest consumers of true crime. And she, for the past few months, has been giving me all of these killers that, in a lot of cases, I hadn't heard of them. This is one of them. And she told me, you have to read this case. Um, she actually sent me the case about this guy's life. And I was blown away that I had never heard of him. Then I brought him to your attention, and you thought, 
you thought I was you thought I was talking about the horror movie Candyman, where you say Candyman three times in the mirror, and this freaking guy appears to you. My friend. Yeah, well, this is a big file. I mean, this guy has a lot of killings. He has a minimum of twenty-eight kills, and they're boys, young men, and he did them in such a short span between nineteen seventy and nineteen seventy-three. Um, his cases, this is before the term serial killer was very pop, uh, popular. So they used the Houston mass murders. That's what this whole case is about, this guy. Um, you know, he did have two accomplices. And, and today we're going to discuss this guy really with a fine tooth comb. Well, there's so much information about this guy. And I want to have the audience really come along with us and hear about his, where he was born, his childhood. Um, did he have abuse? Did he not have abuse? What really was going on in his life? How did he turn from, you know, a kid that was playing in the brass band at school to, you know, this guy is a really bad guy. What, more than what instrument did he play in the high school band, by the way? Brass trombone. I know you're gonna sit there and just. I know you're gonna point your finger and say, "Man, look!" <laughs> but yeah, this guy was kind of a dweeb, man. This is some insane shit. So why is his name the Candy Man? <laughs> it's exactly the reason that you would think his name is the Candy Man. His family owned a candy business, and you know it took different forms at different times in his life, but. That's why they call him the candy man. He used to give kids candy. And he just hoped it happens to be a monster. And the name candy man, they also called him the Pied Piper. So what is this person's actual name? Well, his name is Dean. Right. It's C-O-R-L-L. Uh, Dean Arnold Coral. Coral. And he is a serial killer, sex offender, rapist, torturer, murderer of at least 28 boys. We're going to go into his victims as well. Um, it took place in Houston and Pasadena, Texas. His case is known as the Houston Mass Murders. People should definitely look this guy up. There should be a movie about this guy or a, at least a streaming network's um, there's more about this guy than there is about Richard Ramirez. And this guy is a lot more interesting, I believe, in how he killed. He had accomplices um, that were also part of his victims. This guy was a piece of work, Matt. So let's go into his early life. Let's go into who this guy is so the audience can get a feel for what kind of insect we're dealing with. Because to me, you know, as a collector of insects, and you guys know, if you've been around the show long enough, know that I call serial killers insects. Anyway, he gave candy to kids and he raped them and killed them, and that sucks. That's horrible. But then he gave candy to two kids that he enlisted to rape and kill other kids for him. Is that right? Yeah, he. these are his accomplices. These are his co-defendants. These guys are... Yeah, they were kids, they were young men, teenagers, but they were also helping in the tortures, the rapes, the abductions. And most of these the kids that they murdered and killed were acquaintances of 
being Carl, as well as the two boys that he had as accomplices. So this is a this is pretty unique monster and what he did. Anyway, 1970s Texas. I just wanted to set the table. Continue, Bill. Dan. Yeah, let's just say the candy now, Dean, because this guy doesn't deserve that much, that much attention to his name. Look, the guy's a monster, and that's why we're talking about this guy, because he really isn't worth, well, like I always put, he's not worth two shakes of a dick, but I digress. So, this guy is born in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's the eldest son of Mary Emma Robinson and Arnold Edwin Coral. Their father was a strict guy. Mother was very protective. But ladies and gentlemen, this guy had basically no abuse in his house that we can tell. This guy was not abused so much, so all these so-called experts can sit here and tell you why this guy turned into a serial killer because he was abused by his daddy and his uncle touched him and all this other stuff. That has nothing to do with his case. As I've always said, these guys are born this way with an impulse to kill, and they're able to sexualize the killing aspect of what they're doing. So, as I said, he was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana. His parents were together, admirable relationship. Um, they may have loved each other at one point, and then his parents divorced in 1946. There is, again, no mention of abuse. It's quite the opposite. The, the couple did quarrel a bit, but the mother when they got divorced, she actually sold the house and moved to a trailer home in Memphis, Tennessee, in order for the boys to be close to their father so they can continue a relationship with their father. This was a divorce that was very admicable. It was so admicable that there was a reconciliation in 1950 that the parents got back together. They got married, and it was there that, well, the son, which is the candy man, he is, um, he's not diagnosed properly. He has rheumatic fever. And the doctors then find out later on that he has a heart murmur. And from that point, you know, he basically has to be a dweeb. He can't play sports. He can't attend PE class. So what does he do? He, be he becomes, you know, his interest is brass instruments in the freaking band. So not a traumatic childhood there's nothing that tells me that this guy was a victim of any kind of abuse yeah, that sounds so, like something out of the 1300s well it, it, it basically it's, it's a fever or a virus that attacks, attacks the joints and the tissue around the heart so at some point he was diagnosed to have a heart murmur because of it uh, but this is a long time ago they may have misdiagnosed him they may not have had that you never know but look the deal is that the parents then again divorce. And it doesn't take the mom long to find another husband that she marries. He's a traveling clock salesman. I don't know what the hell that means. I've never run across a traveling clock salesman. Dude, this this wasn't even this wasn't even that long ago. But what year are we talking about? <laughs> a traveling clock salesman? Yeah, you're talking about 1953, 1954, 1955. 
Yeah, well, you know, there was back then there was, you know, Sears, uh, robust catalog. They had these guys, they used to sell vacuum cleaners door to door. I remember in the, in the sixties when I was a kid that we had guys come to the house with these freaking vacuum cleaners. It's the newest, you know, it's not plastic, it's synthetic leather type of stuff. And they would sell you a bunch of stuff. So I, I could see this guy, but you know, existing, obviously he did exist, but you know, he needed a better income. He marries the mother. They moved to a town called Vidor, Texas, or Vidor, Texas. And in 1955, Joyce Janine is born, which is the, the candy man's little sister now. Um, so it's around this time that the clock salesman and the mom begin to create this family business. And this is where it becomes, it's called the, well, it's a candy company, basically. And they have a machine in the, in the, in the home and the two boys, because the candy man had a younger brother and they helped run the candy machines. They also helped packaging the product. And what this guy's doing, the, the, the clock salesman is when he goes into town, he begins to sell these candies. Every home he goes to to sell these, these clocks, he begins to also say, well, look, I also own a uh, candy business. These are my candies. These are samples. And you know, it's a, it's a business that begins to, it begins to grow. It really begins to grow. And, um, the mother's with this guy for, you know, a little while here. And, um, the business really begins to take off. It's, it's not a huge, but it is a, um, a successful business. The candy man is now about 14 years old, 1954 through 1958. He attends the Dora High High School. What we know about this guy in high school, Matt, is he has satisfactory grades. He's a bit of a loner, but which who, who was wasn't a bit of a loner in high school. He dated on occasion. Uh, he had major interest in the brass band. He played the, the trombone. That's what he did. And Look, his life is pretty normal. His his stepfather is, I guess, the original candy man. And shortly after high school, the family, the business is getting so strong that they decide to move the candy business to Houston. They were successful. They weren't Hershey's, but they were definitely a business that was growing. I mean, they moved the business to Houston so they could be closer to the city where most of the product was sold. They even opened up a new shop called the Pecan Prince or Pecan Prince. And it, it was successful. There was anything or any indications that these guys were not comfortable. They probably weren't millionaires, they weren't rich, but they were comfortable. The parents, the stepfather and stepmother had an amicable relationship. There was no abuse that I could see in any way, shape or form. Now, Something did happen in 1960, which, well, gives you an idea where this guy's head might be. And that is that in 1960, when he gets out of high school, um, his mother asks that he move in with his grandmother in Indiana. His grandmother's widowed. And during this time, he's dating a girl. And... Look, at some point, maybe this was popular back then. I know today it's more popular. She actually was so, you know, in love with this guy that she proposed to him. Yeah. yeah she proposed to him. 
and this is around 1962. And I guess it bothered him so much that then he moved back to the family to help with the business that it already expanded again and they moved it to Houston Heights. And you're going to love this map because guess where this guy lived during the time that the, that the, the business was in Houston Heights, Texas. Okay. Bill, why do you think his marriage uh, wasn't working out that well? Is there something about him that wouldn't have led his uh, marriage to work out very well? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the fact is he was faking. And I say he was faking was because, you know, this guy was gay. The girl probably had no idea this guy was gay. She probably thought he was a perfect gentleman because he wouldn't touch her. Or at least not to the point that he looked like or acted like hell you do on, on the first date, you know, like an octopus or something. So in those days, it was, you know, wow, what a well-mannered boy. What we didn't know was that he was gay as a freaking Fruit Loop cake. So, um, you know, he says no, and he moves to the family, uh, back to the family business in, in Houston. And as I said before, being cut off, he moved his... <laughs> His fruity ass to, on top of the candy store, and that's where his apartment was. So get this: and this guy is living above a candy store, and at this age, he's already he already knows he's gay. He's just nineteen, you know, early sixties. So being gay in Texas probably didn't go off very well. So, but he's there, and he's South got, Texas. He's got a, a hanker. What's that? South Texas, Houston area. Yeah, it's a horrible scenario because this guy is like a spider. He's got his web and he's attracted to young boys and that's exactly where he's at. These kids come to uh, you know, party, to, to, to eat candy and, well, they find themselves a spider there named the Candyman. Yeah, it's not, you know, a rich metropolitan area. But, I mean, look, this guy is young. In 1963, his mom actually divorces the guy, this guy named West. And although that business was successful, she and her children were so convinced that a new family business could do well that they opened a new candy business, which uh, she named Carl Candy Company. For all this son, who was obviously the guy we're talking about, Dean Curl, she appoints him as vice president of the new family firm. I, I think regionally this was a pretty successful company. Like, I think he had a, uh, a, a lot of money. I think his family was very well off. Well, yeah, they, they were well off. I, I, I don't know the how much a candy business, what kind of, unless they're like Hershey's or one of those companies, how well they would do. But obviously this is a successful business. And it's at this time that, you know, Dean, the candy man, begins to show a bit of a different side to himself. Um, and that is that he actually makes sexual advances towards a teenager that works for this company. They have employees, and one of the kids 
complains to Dean's mother that her son made sexual advances to her. Her response was, it kind of enabled him to be who he was. She fired the teenager. But this isn't 2000 where something like this happens. You know, everybody's involved, police is involved. The, the situation is handled. She basically fired the teenager. She made, he made comments that she actually felt were not uh, true. How old was the Candyman at this time? Well, he's young. He is, it's, it's 1963. He's only been out of, out of uh, high school a couple of years, about 23 years of age. And he's actually drafted into the United States Army on August 10, 1964. And off to war he goes, or if you want to call it war, he goes to Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic training. He's later assigned to Fort Benning, Georgia, to train as a radio chairman or repairman. And um, he got the rich kid treatment. Permanently, what's that? He got the rich kid treatment. He wasn't in the shit. Yeah, well, he went at permanent assignment to Fort Hood, Texas, which were right back home. And really, according to official military records. Uh, you know, his, his service to the United States was unblemished. He had no problems there. Well, hell, he was, a, he was like a fat kid in a candy store, no pun intended. I mean, he's in the Army with a bunch of guys or showering together. This guy is in heaven. You know, I guess this adds a whole different twist to don't ask, don't tell. But um, he reportedly hated the military service. And then he suddenly applied for a hardship for discharge on the grounds that his family needed him in the family business. And I don't know how it was because of the influence, because he had some money, I don't know. But the army grants him a request and they give him a, an honorable discharge on June 11th, 1965, only 10 months, almost a year of service. He's allowed out, which is, I, I've never heard that before. You said you're drafted, you do four years, and then you get out for whatever reason. But it's, you know, he's 24 years old now. You know, there's a picture of him with an army uniform on. He looks creepy as hell, man. If you look at this picture, you're thinking, Jesus Christ. If they couldn't tell this guy was a freaking pedophile, it was just, I don't know. But around this time, he begins to tell acquaintances um, that he believes he's gay. And he began to have sexual encounters at this time. I don't believe that. I believe that way before this, he knew what he was exactly. Uh, you know, this is, again, what the record is saying. Uh, wait, 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 wait. So what do you mean? So clearly he was gay. I think everyone is aware of that. But you're saying according to his narrative, he just started coming out at this point? Yeah, but he actually, he, he realizes that he's homosexual. And I don't believe that. This is the narrative that people who probably knew him want to say, you don't suddenly come out at 24. You know it. You may not admit it to other people. You may live a lifestyle of a heterosexual man until that point. He knew what he was. Hell, what happened with the employee at his mom's candy shop prior to him going to the army tells that story. If he's making sexual advances at teenage boys, he is far along in his development. He knows exactly what he is. 
Well, I mean, it's, it's you know, in, in those times, homosexuality was looked upon as taboo, and it, it isn't like today where people can be who they want to be and they're not ostracized like they were in this time, especially in Texas. You know, Texas is a red state, very conservative. I'm sure they would have looked upon him um, in a really terrible manner. And they probably would have, you know, there's all kinds of abuse that comes with that, uh, you know, accepting that you're homosexual. But, you know, look, we know, he knows what he is, but he's also a sexual predator. He knows it, and I'm sure that that child that he tried to molest also knew it. But it's, you know, it's kind of looked upon as, oh, well, let's keep that quiet. That was one incident, no big deal. But, um, when he returns back to Houston, his mother gives him the position as vice president of Coral Candy Company. And the other business is still thriving. The Pecan Prince uh, is still going on. And, but there is competition between the two firms. The one owned by his stepfather, West, the uh, traveling clock salesman, and now the Coral uh, candy company. There's a lot of competition between the two, and uh, so it's the same family, right? That owns both of the candy companies, but they kind of split. Well, the, the father and the stepfather, when they divorced, he stayed in charge of the pecan prince. His mother, which is he owns part of the pecan prince, now is open the Coral Candy Company run by her older son, the freaking candy man. So there is competition between both family products, um, it, but there is a, a increase in public demand. They want this product. Obviously, the product they're putting out is very attractive to the uh, public. They want it. And this guy, the candy man, um, you know, he, they decide to relocate the company on this time the Coral Candy Company. And listen to this. They relocated on 22nd Street directly across from Helms Elementary School. And this freaking candy man is known at this time to give free candy to local kids, in particular teenage boys. This is one of the nicknames that he was giving to him, the candy man or the Pied Piper, because of this behavior towards young boys, teenage boys, and uh, from very this this start right here, because we're going down this lane, Matt. So this is the audience to really understand what this guy's about. Yeah, behaving. Yeah, he's behaving very flirtatious towards male employees of the of the candy. Yeah. He even installs a pool table in the rear of the company in order for kids to hang out there. So remember, Matt, you and I have talked about this before where we've talked about, you've asked me, well, look, if you were looking for a child molester or a predator, where would you find this guy? And I said, look, it's not very difficult that if you were in the Serengeti and you wanted to find lions, you could probably look at the local watering hole and you'll find some. If you're looking for girls, go to a beach. Well, this candy store, he made his own, like, watering hole for kids to go to. He's his prey, and that was the back of the place. He put a pool table so guys would go there to play. And this makes the, the 
perfect spider web for these kids to be. He was bringing his prey to him. Let me call that now. Well, I don't think anybody really picked up on what was going on with this guy. You know, it's, it's really difficult to pick up on it because, again, this is something not seen that often in Texas. If it's, it is seen in this time of history, the guy's in the closet. He's not out. It just this guy is different because, look, nobody turns into later in life. So from the very beginning, he was already testing what he was. He knew he was gay. There's nothing wrong with that. But what was wrong with him was he was he had an appetite for violence, for murder, for rape, for torture. And he was experimenting. He didn't yet know exactly what he was. This is the period in his life where he's fumbling around a dark room trying to figure out How come so many of these guys are gay? Well, I, I think that we we're seeing that the, the gays because it's the afterfact. How many people, how many serial killers are in the world? 40 or 60 are working in the United States at one time. Of those, how many are actually gay? Maybe maybe eight, maybe nine. So I don't think it's a large number that we're getting this type of viewpoint because we're looking upon this later on and we're saying, Jesus, this guy was gay and this other guy was gay. It's because these guys are interesting cases, so that's what, but there are substantially more number of straight Syracuse and there are gay ones. We just sensationalized the ones that were gay, like Dahmer. Uh, pretty gay, but I'm, I'm not trying to derail this conversation. No, no, that's okay. I mean, look, I'm sure that the audience is thinking of these things as well. But that this guy is such an interesting kid, which set off a freaking flag for me. Just like Michael freaking Jackson. Come on, man. This is a grown freaking man. And he's hanging around with six-year-olds. So look, let's, let's, let's talk about this. So this guy is 24 freaking years old. And he's hanging around in 1967 to a 12-year-old kid named David Owen Brooks. He has bi-speckle, uh, he's got glasses. He's in sixth grade. He's one of many kids this guy's giving free candy to. Um, and he's taking this kid, socializing with him. He's 24 years old. He's not 20. He's 24. It's a big difference between a 20-year-old and a 24-year-old. He's a grown man. And first, my first thing is, what the hell? What were these kids' parents thinking? How do you let a grown man take your 12-year-old child to South Texas to beaches? You know, and then later, of course, uh, the kid says that this Carl was the first guy that didn't mock his appearance. This guy knew exactly what he was doing. He was trying to befriend this kid. He was already probably engaged in some type of appropriate behavior. He didn't really have that weird of an appearance. He just had glasses. Yeah, well, this kid says that a candy man would give him cash, would, um, he became like a father figure to him. I don't understand that father figure thing when then later the candy man urges this guy to have a sexual relationship with him. You know, this is a child. So obviously right here we have a pedophile. This guy, uh, the candy man, is a freaking pedophile. And he starts a relationship. And one of the things he wanted to do was allow this child to allow him, 
to give him a blowjob. It's just this is a, this is very disturbing to me that this guy, this kind of people exist in the world. It's, it's one of the reasons I do what I do is to bring. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Uh, you know, attention to these people exist out there. It's not a terrible thing that he's gay. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that when you're a sexual predator, children, whether you're a, a straight man who, who abuses young girls or a gay uh, predator who abuses young boys, whatever way you look at it, it's still a pedophile. And these are issues you have to be able to look out for. But look, two consenting adults, whether they're straight, gay, queer, whatever they are, they have a right to be that. And I have nothing to say about that negative. What we're talking about specifically is child molestation. Yeah, and look, it, it became a very big thing. This guy, his kids were staying at uh, the candy man's apartments. They were engaged in sexual relationship. And, uh, you know, it's just a horrible situation. And, you know, we're coming to a point in the life where the candy man begins his, I guess he comes out as a serial killer. And he begins to really flex that particular muscle or really come out as the predator that he is. Not saying he wasn't a predator prior, he was a child molester. Well, yeah, he obviously abused all these kids that he was acquainted with and later became his accomplices. But this is the part where we will leave that for the next episode. This is a very complex case. This is extremely a lot of victims here, ladies and gentlemen, and this guy is a very complex killer, rapist, molester, torturer, kidnapper, and I, it would not give him any justice, or at least the case justice, to just jump to it. Yeah, he is, there's only one other person, Matt, that I have seen similar to this guy, and his name was William Bonnie. He was known as the freeway killer, and he was executed in 1996 at San Quentin Prison. Uh, he was the first person executed with lethal injection. I knew him personally. I interviewed him. I spent a decade speaking to him about the killings and the murders that he committed. This guy, the candy man, is very similar to him because they both tortured their victims. They, uh, they had a particular victim in mind that they liked. And they had several accomplices. William Bonnie had three. This guy had two. Yeah, let's not give away too much. But yeah, this guy, he was basically just a blobby impaler. He was a horrible individual that tortured children in a, in a manner that is very difficult to talk about. I find it difficult to talk about. It's probably one of the reasons that once I got this case, although it was fascinating, um, and a very good subject to talk about for the audience is very disturbing at what he did to these kids.
Yeah, to put it lightly, and you're saying it's disturbing, and you've been on death row, you're talking to a layman. Yeah, yeah, there's no other way to put it that this is very difficult to talk about, and we will be getting to that part of the murder spree on the next episode, but really take a look at this guy. This guy, you know, he is a very unique insect, and... Um, you know, I'm glad that he met the fate that he met. Unfortunately, it didn't happen fast enough because had it happened earlier, we would have had a number of children that would have lived long lives and enjoyed their lives. Unfortunately, they met Dean Carroll, the candy man, and their lives came to an end. Yeah, no, it's, it's a bad case. I mean, um, I'm sure as... You know, a brother, a son, a guy has friends. I'm sure this, in any way, shape, or form, you look at it, uh, thinking about what this monster did to kids uh, affects you in a manner which I wish I could fucking go to his grave and dig his ass up and kill him ten times over because he deserves that type of life, that type of end because of what he did. But look, we're going to get into the next part of this case where the actual murders are next episode. And I think we should just leave it like that. This guy, Dean Carroll, he is the epitome of what a serial killer is. And those people who, you know, fantasize about these guys and think about these guys as, you know, some kind of celebrity, they're not. They are pieces of garbage. And there's only one treatment that they deserve. Uh, you shouldn't feel sorry for these guys you feel because they meet horrible ends at the end of their life because of what they did to other people. So on that note, I think we should close the episode now and let people think about this guy. And the next time we come back, we'll give all the details about this monster's life. That's about right. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And you think you would. You think this is a horror story that just doesn't exist, but it's an all-too-real horror story. And you got it right. Guy who owns a candy store who has a taste in young children. Until next time, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm one of the girl. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it. We'll see you next time. And don't forget to... Subscribe to our Patreon as well as join Facebook, our Instagram page, like things. If Matt's not doing a good job of putting everything up, DM him and tell him to put new stuff up and new content. 